0: we are now known by the love of christ that surpasses all knowledge eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit and united as the church the body of christ made new in the fullness of his love because in christ all things are made new okay we are uh coming to the end of our study of ephesians Uh, Next week, we finish the 10th week, which is the last week, and uh, we're to the place where Paul is starting to get very, very practical with how this radical idea of the gospel, this radical uh, different way to look at religion impacts our day-to-day lives. And when I say it's a radical way of looking at religion, what I mean is that every other religion in the world uh, says that first you get yourself together and then you present yourself to God. But the gospel says that God invites you to come just as you are and then he puts you together. That's radically different. And so Paul is at the place where he is explaining how the gospel really impacts everything that we do and every place where we live. All right? So the, the passage for today is Ephesians chapter 5 beginning at verse 18. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. This is what it says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, One flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's Word, and it's true. I'm really familiar with that passage because I use part of that passage in every wedding that I officiate. And I want you to know that when you look at this passage, you look at it from a particular perspective, no matter who you are. You look at it through uh, lenses, whether you are single or divorced, or whether you grew up in a home where a great marriage was modeled for you, or you grew up in a home where a terrible marriage was modeled for you. You look at this passage through those lenses, and it colors the way you see this. But there is a particularly troublesome part of this passage, and it's uh, verses 22 through 24 where it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Uh, Whenever I read that part during a wedding, I always make a little joke and then give a little one-minute explanation. And I do that because I want to kind of ease the tension because it's so troubling. And this is what I say. I'll say, um, you know, it says wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, and I say that's not the way I would have written the Bible if I wrote it. If I wrote it, I would have said husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands, parents love your kids, kids love your parents, big love fest, right? It's not a great joke, it's just a wedding joke, right? (laughs) And then I'll say, by way of explanation, I'll say, this is what that means. And I'll look at the bride and I'll say, if it was raining outside and I gave him, and I point to the groom, an umbrella, and I said, your job is to keep your new bride dry. And he was trying as hard as he could to keep you dry. It wouldn't make any sense for you to try to wrestle the umbrella from him. You would both get wet. Instead, what would make sense is you would come underneath the umbrella and allow him to do what he was charged to do. That's my explanation. It's not bad for one minute in the middle of a ceremony. We get to unpack it a little more today. But I need to let you know that these are instructions for Christian marriage, not for every marriage. Because this comes at a chapter where Paul has just finished saying, be filled with the Spirit. Be imitators of God as beloved children walk in love, all of that. And what I mean by that is that this is designed, this this pattern of love your wives and wives submit yourselves to your husband is designed for Christians, not for non-Christians. It's way, way too dangerous for a man to love a woman the way Christ loves the church and gives himself up for it if that woman doesn't have Jesus in the middle of her life. Way too dangerous for a woman to submit herself to a man the way the church submits itself to Jesus if the man has no Jesus in him, right? Which is why if you're single, you don't ever want to marry somebody who's not a Christian because it won't work. It's like you're two different systems. You'd be loading two different systems into the same computer and it won't work, this is what I mean. Let me, I, I just have two points for this message, but don't worry because I have 3 subpoints <laughs> for each one of the points. The first point is what I'm calling the change in one. What happens when a person becomes a Christian? The change in one. And the second point is the change when two become one. What happens when two Christians get married? The change when two become one. First, the change in one. When somebody becomes a Christian, when the gospel begins to settle into your soul, there are three changes that take place. It'll change the way you relate to God, it'll change the way you relate to yourself, and it'll change the way you relate to others. And this this is what I mean. When I say it changes the way you relate to God, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is hanging around some pretty unsavory people. And some religious people, like me, clergy, came up to Jesus and we were going, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with those people? Because we all have this idea of the kind of people that Jesus should hang around with and wait, let me stop right there. Holy cow, in the middle of this political polarization that we have in our country, whatever person, whatever group is the other group for you and you think that they are unsavory, just No, that's who Jesus would be hanging out with, right? That's what this means. So they said, why are you hanging out with these unsavory people? And Jesus tells them three stories back to back to back, which he, uh, this may be the only place he does it in the whole New Testament. This is what he says. He says, oh, you, I'm glad you asked. You want to know why I'm hanging out with these people? Let me tell you a story. A man had a hundred sheep And one sheep wandered off. And you know what he did? He left the 99 and he went to find that one. And when he found that one, he picked up that sheep and he put it on his shoulders and he walked all the way back to his house. And then he called his friends and his neighbors and he said, come, rejoice with me because I found my sheep that was lost. And then before that could even sink in, Jesus said, a woman had 10 coins that were precious. And she lost one of her coins. And you know what she did? She began to search for that coin until she moved everything out of her house. She, she swept in every nook and cranny until she found that coin. And when she found that coin, she cried out and called her friends and her neighbors and said, Come rejoice with me, for I found the coin that was lost. And then he said, a man had two sons. And one of his sons went off and did everything he could that would embarrass and shame his father But when everything fell apart he had nowhere to go so he started to come home and you know what that father did? The father picked up his robe and he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and he said we're going to have a party tonight and he called his friends and his neighbors and he said come rejoice with me for this son of mine who is lost has been found. This son of mine who is dead is alive. If you feel like you have screwed up your life, if you feel like you are broken, if you feel like you are lonely, if you feel like you are in pain, Jesus says to you, you are my sheep. You are my coin. You are my son. The party is for you. That's the gospel. What kind of a God does that this kind of God. That's the gospel. And it changes everything about how you relate to God when you realize that he feels like that about you. That's the first thing. The second thing it changes is the way that you feel about yourself, what we call your self-image. Because one of the ways that we describe the gospel here at Christ Community Chapel, and this is not original to me, but one of the ways we describe it is you get the gospel when you realize that you're more deeply flawed than you've ever wanted to admit to anyone, even yourself. But because of what God has done through Jesus on the cross, you're more deeply loved than you have ever dared to dream. And those two things, realizing you're admitting your deep flawedness, And the deep love that God has for you produces in you two things that are very, very unusual to be together. It creates a humility, and it creates a security and confidence. The reason it creates a humility is because you admit what you are. The reason it creates a confidence is because you are loved not based on your performance, but only because of the unquenchable love that God the Father has for you. Which means, of course, you cannot do anything to earn God's love, so you cannot feel pride. But there's nothing you can do to lose God's love, so you can be confident and secure in that love. There is no one who has a self-image like someone who has the gospel deep down. So it changes the way you relate to God, changes the way you relate to yourself, and finally, it changes the way you relate to others. Look at verse 1. He says, uh, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He says, you are so deeply loved. You can imitate God. And in verse 18, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Uh, This is a sponge. It's a dry sponge. And uh, there are times uh, when I feel dry. Uh, inside. And when I do, uh, what I usually look for is for somebody else to do something for me or say something to me that'll be like drops of water on the dryness of my soul. I was at uh, at a fundraiser last weekend for a ministry, and I was sitting at a table with a bunch of like uber successful people. I mean, they were crazy successful. And just sitting around them, and the clothes that they were wearing started to make me feel drier. So I was kind of longing. I was trying to think, this is true, I was trying to think of something that that would be so brilliant that it would take their breath away. They would turn to me and just go, you belong at this table, you know? (laughs) And I was thinking, what could change that? And I thought, what I would need to do when I feel like that, I would need to excuse myself and go somewhere and remind myself that I am the sheep. I am his coin. I am his son. And I would come out of that and go back to the table, and I would be like this. And then I wouldn't have to worry about me. Then I could minister to them. Then I could listen to them. Then I could help them. Then I could care and love them. When you get the gospel deep down, and there are times, there are going to be times this week, just so you know, where you will need to excuse yourself from wherever you are and just get by yourself and tell yourself the gospel again. Remind yourself, immerse yourself. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Immerse yourself and say, Oh my goodness. I almost forgot. I'm his sheep. I'm his coin. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I don't have to feel dry. I can be filled. The gospel changes you as one, whether you're single or married. It changes how you relate to God, how you relate to yourself, and then how you relate to others. The second point is, what happens when two become one? What happens when two Christians get married? Yeah. One of the things that happens when two people become two Christians become married is it it, it changes the flow. And what I what I mean by that is this. Um, historically, there have been two reasons why people get married. I don't know if you know this. You can see them both in the movie Titanic. If you have not seen the movie Titanic. Congratulations, you're the only one. (laughs) You should go ahead and and see it. But I'll tell you the the basic story. This woman, Rose, played by Kate Winslet, comes on the boat, and she's engaged to a guy named Cal, who's this smarmy, rich guy she doesn't even like. She's engaged to him because her father has died, and her mother and her family are in jeopardy of losing their social status and their estate and their name. And Cal's wealth and his status will actually save the family and save her. But then when she's on the boat, she meets Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio, right? And she begins to fall in love with Jack, which is the other reason people get married. Two reasons people get married. And oh, I didn't know this until I read an article on it that uh, evidently the Titanic was wildly popular here in the West, but it wasn't popular in the East, in Asia, in India, in places like that, because people in Asia and India get married for the first reason. And they thought Rose was terribly selfish to not provide. You get married to provide For your family. You get married to save your mom. You should do that. That, Who cares about love? And here in the West, we go, no, what a heroic thing to do for her to walk away from that and and fall in love and and go after the fulfillment of herself, right? But both types of marriages move the same direction. They're both consumer-based. If she married Cal, she married Cal for what Cal could do for her and her family. If she marries Jack, she marries Jack for what he will do for her. And that's the way most people get married, which is why when they get divorced, people go, oh, you know what? It's not working for me. Right? And I got involved with this because you were doing something for me. And when you quit doing something for me, there's no real reason to stay married because it's a consumer relationship. I'm not getting what I'm paying for. And then Paul comes along, and he says, oh, that changes. When two people who are Christians get married, oh my. Because what you have is, you don't have a dry sponge that says, oh, you are responsible to fill me. What you have are two people. I got to move these closer, right? You have two people that are both soaked in the Spirit that then come together like this, and what happens is the flow changes because what happens is the purpose of marriage then becomes for me to remind my wife when she is dry, oh, I I will remind myself that I have the gospel and I can minister to you in a certain way. But my big thing is to remind you, Karen, that it's not me that you get your fulfillment from. You are his sheep. You are his coin. You are his daughter. Immerse yourself again. That's what A marriage means when two people are Christians. So it changes the whole flow of what a marriage is supposed to be about. The second thing it changes is the role uh, of a marriage. And this is the weird thing. Um, You know, uh, this is where people get all bunged up because they say, well, the Scripture says that a husband is supposed to love his wife, but then it says that a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. That doesn't seem quite fair right? That's what people think. But people don't realize that verse 21, right before he launches into this part about husbands and wives, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into while husbands and wives submit differently to each other. See, when he says that a husband loves his wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, That gets an image in my mind. Jesus gave everything. The image I have in my mind is coming to somebody and saying, I give you everything I am and everything I have. And it's like you bow before somebody and offer them up everything, which is what Jesus did. That's the way a man submits to his wife. The way a wife submits to her husband, they use the word submit, which is she comes underneath that love and umbrella. And the only reason, the only way I can try to explain it to you is is the way I understand it in my head. When a a man and a woman come together in marriage, a man man and a woman are different physically, right? When they come together in a marriage and they, they come together and they join with each other, they interlock physically and they become one flesh literally. I think the difference between a a man and a woman goes deeper than the physical. It goes to your souls. When souls interlock between a husband and a wife, there is a difference between the husband and a difference between the wife, and the way they interlock is that a husband says, I love you the way Christ loves the church, and the wife says, I love you the way the church, I submit to you the way the church submits to Jesus. I can explain that more, but we don't have time. Last thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a change in, in the goal for marriage. Right? Um, this is what Paul says, beginning of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Then this. He launches into that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul launches right, goes right from a husband and wife and a goal of a marriage to say, oh, this is what Jesus, this is Jesus in the church and his goal for the church. His goal for the church is to present us perfect without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And he does that under the the safety and the canopy of a promise that I will never leave you and never forsake you. And he does this combination of love where he says, I love you just as you are, but I also see what you can be. And with my love and my truth, I will move you to what you were meant to be. That's the goal of marriage. I go to my wife and I say, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And I love you just the way you are, but I also see what you can be. And God has called me to partner with him to help you become all that God made you to be. And that's my goal. Not to use you for me, but for me to be used for you. And I always have this in my mind too, that when I see my wife Karen in heaven, that I'll here and I'll go, I knew it. I knew you were going to be like this. I saw this in you the first time we met, but I saw you becoming more like this every year we were married, and now look at you. You are perfect. Christian marriage is something that is absolutely unique. But I want you to know this. The gospel will change you. There's a change in one. The reason I wanted to go through that is if you are single, I don't want you to miss this. The gospel can change everything about you. But if you are married, then you are two Christians who are married. It can change you the way you approach your spouse and the way your spouse experiences you. But don't forget, you are his sheep. You are his coin. You are his son. You are his daughter. There is nothing more powerful than the gospel. Let it go deep. Ephesians together. Transformed. 2018. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you, uh, you do what only you can do. I'm grateful for the stories you told in Luke chapter 15. I'm grateful that you tell that story about me and about every one of us. I pray that throughout this week, as we get dry, I pray that you will plunge us, that you will remind us of your deep love for us, and that will change the way we relate to, to God, to ourselves, to each other, and if we're married to our spouses. Thanks. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.